Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Bill Barnwell Show. That's me, I'm Bill Barnwell. Today, a solo mailbag podcast answering your questions. But before we get into that, you may have heard of Scott Van Pelt, the only person foolish enough at ESPN to put me on television. You may also know that Scott Van Pelt has a podcast. You can check out the SV Pod, where Scott Van Pelt dives into the biggest stories in sports with his unique brand of humor and insight. Joined, of course, by the wonderful Stanford Steve as well. You can find SV Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And also, The Ultimate Fighter is back, the reality show that brings top MMA prospects together under one roof to compete for a UFC contract is on ESPN+. Featherweight champ Alexander Volkanovsky and Brian Ortega, coach men's bantamweights and middleweights, who have put their lives on hold for the chance to pursue their UFC dreams. Stream new episodes every Tuesday, only on ESPN+. Sign up now at ESPNplus.com slash UFC. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there is no competition. And right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number 8-S-A-V-E. Go to JetsPizza.com to learn more and find a Jets Pizza location near you. Again, try Jets Signature 8-Corner Pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's number 8, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. And now, I'm going to answer some mailbag questions. All right. So, welcome to the show. Uh, We did this a couple months ago, and I had fun doing it, and there's not a lot happening in the NFL right now. So thought it might be a good time to have another solo mailbag show. Thanks so much for sending in your questions at Bill Barnwell. You have a bunch of them here. Um, All football, a little bit of football slash other stuff, but uh, hopefully you guys will enjoy it. So I'll get started. Uh, First question is from Harry, who says, why are so many young coaches conservative on fourth and short? McVay, Flores, and Kingsbury all seem very conservative. In Flores's case, it seemed he got more conservative his second year versus his first. And I wanted to answer this question because I want to bring up just how hard it is to gauge stuff like this when it comes to coaches' aggressiveness, because I think we have a selective memory. We remember certain things that stand out, maybe one play where a coach was conservative and maybe we forget about some other plays where he was aggressive because it worked out or it wasn't as uh, significant in terms of the leverage of the game. And it's funny because Harry is right about Sean McVay, who was 20th last year in Football Outsiders Aggressiveness Index, and Brian Flores was 31st. So right on two of the three. Cliff Kingsbury was number one. He was the most aggressive coach in football in terms of going for it on fourth down. And I'm not going to say that Cliff Kingsbury went for it in every single situation. I'm sure if he went back, you would find scenarios here and there where Cliff Kingsbury maybe kicked when he shouldn't have. But I do think that Cliff Kingsbury also was probably aggressive in situations we're not remembering. And I don't know if this necessarily holds. I mean, Kevin Stefanski, who was a rookie coach, was the third most aggressive coach in the league by the aggressiveness index. Uh, Matt LaFleur, who was famously not aggressive in the postseason, was fifth. Vic Fangio, maybe the stodgiest old school coach I can think of, was 32nd. Um, and I, I do think that, you know, when it comes to someone like Brian Flores, 
he didn't have the horses. That Miami rushing game was pretty bad last year. They had Ryan Fitzpatrick, who is terrifying in short yardage. Um, maybe they were doing him a favor by not having him lower his head for a yard uh, in the second quarter uh, of a game in November. And I don't know if they wanted to run to a Tango Loa all that much. So maybe they'll be more aggressive this year. Um, but certainly that is an opportunity for coaches to help push their team towards winning games. Picking up little bits of win probability here and there does make a difference. But I, I, you know, I feel like it's really tough to gauge what happens over the course of an entire year, especially months after that season has ended. So Mark Bullock, who has an excellent, uh, I believe a Substack covering the Washington football team, which you can subscribe to, um, asks which NFL teams most closely resemble Premier League teams. Mark is English, so it may make sense that he asked this question. Who's the Man City, Liverpool, United, et cetera, of the NFL? This is tough. Obviously, different sports. There's not perfect comps for some of these, but this is what I came up with. So Manchester City, new money, right? I mean, this is a team that is just flourishing in recent years. They're breathtaking at their best. They're just an offensive juggernaut at their best. They have a coach everyone admires, but they haven't done it on the biggest stage. Yes, they've won multiple Premier League titles, but no Champions League titles. Um, And they failed rather conspicuously. And the team that stands out to me there would be the Los Angeles Rams, where you have the Sean McVay for Pep Guardiola comp, um, but a team that made it to the Super Bowl and was stifled on the biggest stage by the New England Patriots. Manchester United, I believe Mark's team, dominant, of course, a while back, lost, started losing once they got rid of a legendary coach, now finally showing signs of life again. This is a tough one. I don't know if there's a great comp here. I thought maybe the Dolphins or maybe the post-Tony Dungy, John Gruden, Bucks. I don't think there's a great fit for United. Now, Chelsea, oozing with talent, often frustrating in years past, but now finally back on top. Of course, they won the Champions League this year. Once they got the right manager, I would say maybe the Bucks. Again, I know Bruce Arians was there a year earlier. Maybe Tom Brady is the, the right addition as opposed to um, Thomas Tuchel, but certainly... Um, with Chelsea winning the Champions League, the Bucks came to mind for me. Arsenal, once the standard bearer, now just sad, just sad to see what they've become. Uh, I had the Dallas Cowboys here. You know, maybe the, the timelines don't exactly match up, but the Cowboys, a team that, uh, of course, were just perennially competitive for so long. And then it's a shame to see where they are in mid table now. Spurs, uh, Tottenham Hotspur, top heavy talent should be devastating. They just can't get everyone healthy at the right time or they hire the wrong guy to run the ship. Clearly, clearly, these are the Los Angeles Chargers of the Premier League. Um, just painful to watch because at their best, they can compete with anybody. But you know, they're just going to trip over their own feet and screw themselves up at some point. Then Liverpool finishing up devastating attacks. And the crack showed once they lost a key piece or two, of course, Liverpool, it was Virgil van Dyke for this team. It was their offensive line in the Super Bowl, the Kansas City Chiefs. So I, I'll, I'll take your suggestions. I think that's a tough one. Um, but I like Liverpool and the Chiefs. I think that is the best comp of the bunch. So Jay asks, what is the league's take on Cardinals GM Steve Kine? He says he has one playoff win in eight seasons. And I'm not a big Steve Kime guy, and I think he's done some good work. I think that they've made some good picks, but it's been very inconsistent drafting. And I think that, you know, they have a formula for what they want. And 
sometimes that works out great, but I think we've seen with the more athletic players they drafted, especially like the hybrid defenders where they just sort of think they can take a great athlete and put him in a particular situation. Those guys have not panned out for them. Um, he somehow gets credit for moving on from Josh Rosen after a year. Like I, I, I get that it's a sunk cost, but you also drafted that guy. You wouldn't get credit for that in this way in any other business. You know, if you were running a pizza shop and you put a bunch of garbage on your pizza and tried to sell it and <laughs> didn't sell because it, it was terrible. And then six months later, you were like, hey, we should probably not sell that garbage pizza and then put out, you know, a more traditional pizza and had more success. You wouldn't be a genius. Like, you don't deserve credit for that. Like, yes, you moved on from a sunk cost, but you still were the one who did that in the first place. Um, I, I feel like giving him credit for that stuff is so strange to me. And the Cardinals have just repeatedly tried to, you know, get by with voidable years to try and field competent starting lineups. Um, I just don't think their cap management has been good. I don't think their drafting has been otherworldly. I think it's been okay. And during the Bruce Arians era, they had a really good knack for finding players, you know, who are veterans in free agency and getting the most out of them. But I kind of feel like that's more Bruce Arians than Steve Kime. And to be fair, you might maybe say that ownership, the Bidwell uh, ownership group here, maybe has something to do with this. Like, I don't know that Steve Kime wanted to pay Larry Fitzgerald, all the money Larry Fitzgerald got paid over the last two years of his career, but every GM has to deal with ownership to one place or another. So uh, I, you know, I'm hopeful for the Cardinals this year. I think there's some definitely some talent there, Um, but I also don't know that this is a great run organization at this point. Um, The next person has a name that might be offensive. I'm just not going to say it to err on the safe side. Uh, But they ask, with the bumpy transition for Urban Meyer continuing a rough history of college coaches making the jump to the NFL, who would be the worst coach to make the opposite transition? Which coach would do the worst job convincing teenagers it would be fun to play for them? And I feel like the easy answer here, maybe, or the most the most obvious answer that comes to mind at first glance would be a real sort of hard ass coach, someone like a Dan Campbell. But I don't know if that's true. I, I feel like, you know, some of those coaches have success at the college level. Matt Rule is someone who, you know, does not necessarily seem like he's the warmest, you know, most, most uh, uh, glowing guy and had plenty of success at the college level. Tom Coughlin is a guy who seemed to be curmudgeonly during his NFL time and he had success at Boston College. So I wouldn't rule those guys out. I feel like people would want to play for a Dan Campbell. I would say maybe Nick Sirianni, where you have a guy who was a college coach for a couple of years, that a decade ago, has been in the pros ever since as a positional coach. So he hasn't recruited much, doesn't really have that gravitas yet of a successful NFL coach. His press conferences, I mean, have not been all that great so far in Philadelphia. I would have gone with Adam Gase last year. I think this year I'll go with Sirianni until he proves that he's an NFL caliber head coach. Matt Offord, uh, a colleague and friend of mine at ESPN asks, what is the right email album for the upcoming Seahawks season? And Mina Kimes, our mutual friend, jumped in to say, the places you have come to fear the most, which I believe is a dashboard confessional album. I'd have to double check. Uh, Yes, it is a dashboard confessional album. Um, which is a good answer, but it's not the best answer. The best answer is designing a nervous breakdown 
by the anniversary because as Kevin Clark, I believe I said in the past, the Seahawks have never played a normal game. Every Seahawks game is just chaos. It is a nervous breakdown each and every game. And now you get an extra one because it's a 17 game season. So uh, I do think that anything about anxiety when it comes to Seahawks is the emo album I would choose. Luke Hobson asks, my friends and I just started a dynasty league and we'll be drafting the rookies soon. I have the fifth overall pick. With a brand new league, does this change the level of importance for a position? I'm assuming running backs and wide receivers will go first. So should I think about one of the quarterbacks? And the answer here depends on the rules. And Luke did not include whether he was in a super flex league where he can start two quarterbacks or a one quarterback league, a more traditional league. So if it's a super flex league where you're starting two quarterbacks, yes. I would say you want one of those rookie quarterbacks, especially if they don't go in the top four picks. If you can get Justin Fields or Trey Lance with what that, that fifth overall pick in a super flex league where you have that rushing floor and, of course, the massive upside as a passer as well, you absolutely are taking that pick. Now, if it's a more traditional uh, single quarterback league, it, honestly, it's too easy to find a useful quarterback. I don't even have any people are in your league, but if it's a 10 or 12 person league, you know, starting 12 quarterbacks a week, there's so many quarterbacks who are going to be available as options. So I think you probably don't want to go for one of the quarterbacks at five. Now I will say having done a rookie dynasty draft so far this off season, not only uh, my personal one, but also on this podcast with Mike Clay, I think fifth is probably my least favorite spot in a rookie dynasty draft given that you're probably seeing Jamar Chase, Kyle Pitts, Ashi Harris, and Travis Etienne come off the board one through four. I think there's a drop-off to the fifth overall pick there. And I, I mean, there's not bad players available. Javante Williams looks like he's going to be an interesting running back prospect for the Broncos. Devontae Smith, I think it's going to be a superstar for the Eagles. Jalen Waddle looks, of course, like an excellent wide receiver prospect for the Dolphins. But I don't know that to me there's a big gap between five and seven. So I wonder if maybe you're better off trading up from five or trading down a little bit from five. I just think that's a a point where that next tier starts. And I can't tell the difference between the, the values maybe at that next tier. C asks, what is the over-under on the next year in which the Houston Texans make the playoffs? And my answer to this is always that things change quicker than you might think. The classic example I always give when I talk about this stuff, are the 2007 Miami Dolphins, who were, I believe, 1-15. in 15. They were in a division with the New England Patriots, not just any Patriots team, but the 16-0 New England Patriots, one of the best teams in the history of the National Football League. They finished 15 games back that year. If anybody has suggested that the Miami Dolphins were going to win the division in 2008 or make the playoffs anytime soon, given what the Patriots were holding, they would have been fired. If I had suggested that at the time, I don't know if I even had a job writing about football then, I would have lost it. And yet that is exactly what happened. Tom Brady gets hurt in week one. The Dolphins get Chad Pennington. They add the wildcat to their offense and they win the AFC East the following year. So anything can happen. In the NFL, uh, think about more recently, the Browns, they were 0-16 in 2017. They made the playoffs in 2020. Indy was 4-12 in 2017. And then Andrew Luck retires and they still made the playoffs 
in 2020. The Texans are a mess. Nobody is arguing that the Texans are not a mess, but they have a few stars. I mean, the Laramie Tunsil trade was a disaster, but you still have a pretty good left tackle in Laramie Tunsil. They have some talent on this roster. And if they get Deshaun Watson back for 2022, or maybe they get the first overall pick at quarterback in 2022, they might be better quicker than people are giving them credit for. This is a league now. Remember, we're 14 of 32 teams at the playoffs. Nearly half the league makes it to the postseason. So I would probably set that over-under. I don't know how what that the like a earlier later, I guess this is. I would set it at 2023, but I'd probably have some juice on the older. I think I got that right. Jets in 2025 asks. How would you adjust, how would you address sorry the Jets backup quarterback situation trade or wait and hope the right fits get cut <laughs> so behind Zach Wilson right now it's James Morgan and Mike White that's about as bad as it gets for a backup quarterback situation I know the Jets invest in their offensive line I know that they are not desperate to compete for a Super Bowl this year you still want more than that behind your starting quarterback so I kind of figured. They would go after someone who's already worked under Mike LaFleur, who's now their offensive coordinator. I thought C.J. Beathard was a logical fit, given that he was in San Francisco, got some reps over a couple of years. Not a great quarterback, but a passable backup at the very least. Instead, he went to Jacksonville, which, I mean, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. You're behind. You knew at this point the Jags were drafting Trevor Lawrence with the first overall pick. Maybe Jacksonville trades Gardner Minshew. That I guess that's not out of the question. I think they should, given that he is would be a pretty valuable player. I think he's worth a a third round pick to me. But if Minshew stays, Bethard's not needed on that roster. So wouldn't be shocked if Minshew stays, if Bethard gets cut, and then the Jets pick him up. I mean, I I would not want to give up a draft pick for a team that again is not expected to compete. I would want to wait and see who gets cut. A quarterback will drop out there. And then hopefully it is someone who has familiarity with this Shanahan Kubiak offense, which to be fair, like 10 teams in the NFL are running this offense right now. So, um, you know, you feel like a good chunk of backup quarterbacks have at least played in this scheme one place or another. DGS Rockstar asks, why does it feel like there are only five teams every year with good offensive lines? Is it just that hard of a job? Are there too many positions to fill? Is defense that far ahead? Is it a matter of continuity and front offices not seeking that continuity in favor of free agent upgrades? And I think it's actually something different than those four suggestions, which I think are, yeah, four suggestions, pretty reasonable. Um, but I would say the closest one I would say is continuity and the attrition rate for these offensive linemen. The problem is just, it's so difficult to actually keep five starting offensive linemen on the field for the vast majority of the season. So I went and look back at the last decade. This is now 10 years of teams, 320 teams, 320 offensive lines to work with. 10 of those 320 teams had the same five offensive linemen start all 16 games. So a very small portion of the total. Three of those 10 teams made it to the Super Bowl. And a fourth helped Adrian Peterson win league MVP. And I remember before that, just before this window, about 15 years ago, the 2007 Giants had a very questionable quarterback at the time by the name of Eli Manning, won a Super Bowl by starting the same guys every week. There is not any way to plan this. Like you can't 
build an offensive line that you can project to stay healthy. There's just not any way to do it. I mean, it's just so random from year to year, but it's hugely valuable. And, you know, unless you're spending starter caliber money for your sixth or seventh offensive lineman, which is just very tough to do. I mean, just you have to cut back elsewhere. Um, Teams are going to have a weak spot pop up during the year. And, you know, we saw with the Chiefs, for example, they were able to hold on until they lost Eric Fisher. And then the the floodgates just came in at that point uh, in the Super Bowl. But, you know, you're going to have that weak spot you need to account for. And I think the Bills are a team that very conspicuously prefer to go after bulk, not bulk, but go after um, a, a, a large number of offensive linemen instead of paying a premium for guys besides uh, Mitch Morris. And that worked out really well for them. I wonder if other teams are going to try and adopt that formula. But um, I do think that, you know, the hard part is just that you have to keep these guys healthy to have a great offensive line. And it's so hard to do that year after year. Jiffy Pop 12. I have never had Jiffy Pop. Just occurred to me. I've had microwave popcorn, of course. I'm not a crazy person, but I've never had Jiffy Pop before. Jiffy Pop 12, who presumably loves Jiffy Pop, given that he put it in his Twitter handle, asks, what would it take to see a 2,000-yard rusher again? And which team do you think currently has the highest chance to do so? I'm a little confused by this question because we just saw one. Derrick Henry ran for 2,000 yards last year. This question makes it out like it's a... You know, we haven't seen it in decades. We saw it just last year. Derrick Henry got to, I believe, 2,007 yards. And I wrote about this topic really at ESPN.com. Sorry, 2,027 yards for Derrick Henry. Um, about which players are most likely to break NFL records as we move to the 17-game schedule. And I think Derrick Henry has to be the favorite again, just because he has a clear path to a significant workload. We know Tennessee wants to... Um, run the ball. I know we'll see what happens with Julio Jones and the changes to the offense, but it's not like Derrick Henry's going to get the ball 150 times next year if he's healthy. Um, you know, and he's a very effective runner. So I think Henry is the huge favorite. I'm concerned about his ability to stay healthy given the workload last year, but every running back has issues with staying healthy necessarily. Um, two long shots, maybe. One was Clyde Edwards Lair, who's going to be playing behind a much better offensive line with no real competition for touches in an offense where they want to pass the ball, but we've seen teams just basically give up. And we saw the Texans do it last year, the bills in the regular season, just say, okay, we're going to play two safeties, 25 yards back and let you run the ball. And if Clyde Edwards alert gets enough of those games and the offensive line is better than it was that, that would give me a very interesting opportunity. And then uh, Josh Norris uh, brought this up on our last show, um, Joe Mixon as a possible long shot. He didn't bring up a 2,000 yard scenario, but just the arguments for Joe Mixon having a clear path to a really, really significant workload in Cincinnati. Um, you know, I, I think he would be a viable long shot. I don't think he'd be the second choice for me, but I think he has a better shot than maybe people would be giving him credit for. But I do think we'll see more 2,000 yard rushers now, even though the running game has been diminished just because we have that extra game to work with. Paul Fertucci asks, what are your top two or three a year away from competing or a year away from the playoff teams and why? I don't really have a year away teams because I think teams move faster than we give them credit for. Teams take leaps that are dramatic and happen really quickly. I mean, the Buccaneers were not a team that looked like a Super Bowl contender even after they added Tom Brady. I, I think I wrote in my column that they were a Super Bowl contender 
I think I even picked them to make the Super Bowl on Scott Van Pelt's show last year, but I was in the minority. And I, I think we sort of see teams as going on very linear paths. Well, that's not really how this goes. Um, but teams that come to mind for me who fit this, where I think they can compete as early as this year. Um, Broncos, of, of course, they need a quarterback. And I think they would need Teddy Bridgewater or Drew Locke to play well. The Falcons, the only problems there, I think, are just they have seven home games, which is a mess, given that you have other teams with nine home games this year. The Jags, um, I think I picked the Jags to win the AFC South. Um, that depends on Urban Meyer being a competent head coach, which early returns are mixed, to be fair. But um, I do think that the Jags could be contenders much quicker than anybody gives them credit for. And I would say the Eagles, where you have massive health improvements, especially along the offensive line, um, 5.9 expected wins last year in a bad division. And we don't know, Jalen Hurts might be a useful quarterback. And if he is, the Eagles are a plausible playoff team. Jags, you know, that division's a mess. Um, Colts are trying to figure out if Carson Wentz is a good quarterback. Tennessee, I mean, so dependent on Derrick Henry and they're, they're sort of three stars on offense staying healthy. Um, Jags are better than their record last year. They get a massive upgraded quarterback. I, I think they're a viable playoff team. I know that that seems crazy right now, but I mean, a lot of indicators to me suggesting the Jaguars and Eagles are going to be more competitive even this year than people are giving them credit for. Chi Sando, who I don't believe is the brother of my former colleague and good friend from the athletic Mike Sando. How would you think the offense and target shares look in New Orleans now with Jameis Winston, a quarterback, rather than Drew Brees? We also talked about this a little bit on the Josh Norris show last week, but I think we see something closer to the offense from the first few years of the Brees attack when he was, you know, a devastating scene passer to guys like Marquise Colston and Jimmy Graham, and then had deeper routes running with, uh, who's that guy? Devery Henderson. Happy I pulled that name. Devery Henderson, who would like the ultimate best ball player, right? Like would average like 21 yards per catch, uh, but also have like six zeros in the course of a season. Um, Devery Henderson, 24.8 yards per reception in 2008. That's crazy. Um, you know, I, I think they have that upside with this offense. I, I think that Michael Thomas is still going to get a ton of targets. He's going to be their intermediate receiver. He's going to be in the Colston Graham role. He's that oversized, um, you know, big body who's going to catch slants, who's going to catch digs, who's going to be working in the middle of the field. And then I think Trey Quan Smith, who I mentioned as a underrated best ball prospect, I think he's in a great position. I mean, he's not Devery Henderson, but does have speed, can get downfield, a very viable deep target for a guy in Jameis Winston who we know is going to look downfield. And I know we've heard rumors that if Taysom Hill is a starter, we're going to get some run-heavy, crazy offense. I would love to see that. I mean, this is the same Sean Payton who – uh, famously, when he was suspended for a year, went to go coach his, I want to say sons, um, you know, Pop Warner team, or, or I guess Pee Wee football team, and lost twice to a team that was running the single wing. I would love to see the Saints, you know, run this single wing heavy, uh, you know, Taysom Hill run first offense. I don't think that's going to happen, but I do think they could run the ball more this year than they have with Drew Brees in the past, even if Jameis Winston is the starter. Josh Ray A asks, if you had to, what NFL player in all of history would you clone to make a complete team? This is tough. I mean, obviously, I think that players from the modern era are faster and bigger and stronger 
than players from the past. If you put, I don't know, if you put a guy from today's game who's like pretty good, like I don't know, would would Michael Gallup be the best receiver in NFL history if he went back forty years? Probably, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to do that. I, I want to look up guys relative to the context they were playing in. And I think the guy who stands out to me is Paul Horning, who was a very good rusher and receiver with the Packers and eventually made the Hall of Fame, kicked field goals and extra points for them as well. He was not a very good kicker, but kickers in general were pretty bad at that point. Also threw a bunch of passes for the Packers and threw 233 passes as a, I guess, was he a, what position would he technically have been? But he was at Notre Dame and threw the ball quite a bit as well. So I mean, just the range of skills. I guess he would have been a quarterback, technically, according to collegereference.com. So, I mean, that range of skills, hard to come by. You know, I think if you had Saquon Barkley and, you know, taught him how to kick, you could probably get a pretty incredible player. Um, And obviously the athleticism is hard to match, but I think Corning, uh, relative to the competition, you know, did so much and did so at a high level. So I think he would be the guy who comes to mind for me. A real Joe Wright. Thank you for not offering any questions from any fake Joe Wrights. He asks, as good an offensive mind as Kyle Shanahan is after three sub-500 seasons out of four, is it time to start wondering how good of a head coach he is? And this is really interesting because we know he got that six-year contract. I think it's fair to ask what happens if the Niners go 4-12 and again in 2021. I mean, this is a... Niners team that, you know, it's not like they've been on the cusp of competition over the past few years. I mean, since Shanahan got there, six and 10, four and 12, 13 and three, and now six and 10 again. Um, if they went four and 12, I, I think you'd have to start having conversations. I don't think he would get fired. I think the Niners recognize that he is a really smart offensive mind, and that is the most valuable thing to have as a head coach. But I think you would at least have to look at what the Niners have done over the past few years because they've made a lot of moves and some of them have worked out really well. A lot of the decisions they've made in free agency, in the draft, have not worked out. And Kyle Shanahan, I believe, has final say on a lot of those decisions. Maybe he defers to John Lynch, you know, when it comes to the draft, defers in certain situations, but this is not a team that's like running on all cylinders. Now, granted, when they did run on all cylinders, they made it to the Super Bowl and came within a couple of plays of beating the Chiefs. So we know their upside and that matters. But if they have a really dismal season this year, that one Super Bowl season, that one year and four sticks out like a sore thumb. And I do think this is one of the reasons they traded for Trey Lance is that they did not want to be stuck having to, to hope that Jimmy Garoppolo is healthy for all 16 games. Now, I think Trey Lance is going to have more upside. I think he's going to be the starter. Um really by October, given Jimmy Garoppolo's injury history. But I think that they thought, okay, we will be a, a contender if we get Trey Lance and if we have a a high upside, high floor backup quarterback. And there are other ways they could have done that, but I think that they are going to be a better football team this year than 4-12. and 12. I do think they're going to be a playoff team this year, but, I mean, they are a team that is certainly, uh, I think you have to ask those questions about, you know, are they for, for the things they get right for the offense they have, for the skills they have, for the coaches they have, you know, are they making a 
lot of great decisions or a few great decisions. And I think it's more the latter than the former. Finishing up here, last question. I got a lot of questions about this man. I asked this on Monday afternoon. This is from Matthew Venuti. He asked, who is the NFL equivalent of Ben Simmons? First off, I just feel bad. I mean, Ben Simmons, you know, thrown onto the bus by pretty much everybody, including his own teammates, his own coach, seemingly. I mean, just a awful experience for a guy who's good. Like Ben Simmons is a really talented basketball player. Um, But I, I will say this. I think this is tough because... Ben Simmons, if you don't know, if you're not a basketball fan, Ben Simmons is, I believe, six foot ten. He plays point guard. I believe he is an incredible athlete. He is very skilled. He's a good defender. He is good at everything you would do on a basketball court except shooting. Now, granted, he did average 14 points per game during the regular season. I know that he kind of got in his head seemingly during the playoffs. He wasn't shooting late in games, but He's been a better scorer than I think people are giving him credit for, given that he finished the season with three games of eight points or less. You can't really do that in the NFL and get by. Like, it's not a position, like maybe like a, a cornerback who doesn't get interceptions. Um, but like, if you're a wide receiver, you know, maybe you have a year where you don't get a bunch of touchdowns. And it's just sheer variance. But, you know, you're not going to have like a wide receiver who has. 80 catches for 1,200 yards and has two touchdowns every single year. That just does not relate up. You can do it in baseball. You can have like a a first baseman who is a great defender, who runs the base as well, who hits for average but doesn't hit for power when you expect first baseman to hit 40 home runs. That doesn't seem that crazy to me. But the one guy who I thought might make sense, and he's not as good as Ben Simmons, but a guy who was drafted with the first overall pick, just like Ben Simmons, a guy where – we know he's super talented, but he hasn't been able to produce it. That one thing you would expect from his position is Jadevian Clowney, where he is a, you know, the underlying numbers are great. We know he's a very good run defender. We know he is a really impressive pass rusher, but for one reason or another, whether he just doesn't have those finishing moves, whether he just doesn't have those changeups, he just has not been a guy who's been able to convert that production into big sack numbers. So maybe... That's the closest thing for Ben Simmons, but it is a really tough comparison. The NFL, I think it's just you have to do that one core thing that your position is expected to do. But hopefully Ben Simmons gets past this. Hopefully Ben Simmons has a great career. It might have to happen away from Philadelphia, but hey, people have Philadelphia from before and not regretted that decision as Andy Reid can attest. That's it. Um, I appreciate the mailbag questions. I will be back next week talking more NFL, but hope you guys enjoyed this. Thanks so much for the questions and more audio coming next week.